0: Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. We've got some real cool dudes on our Zoom today. This is a repeat. We tried this before. No, we sort of tried this before. You know, the scheduling was probably my problem. It was I'm,
1: 100% Mark's Because
0: fault. I don't do technology <laughs> and scheduling. I'm, I'm not the guy that sends like calendar invites. I'm more of a guy that will call you on the phone, not even text you. I'm going to call you and I'm going to say, Hey, you guys want to do a recording? And someone's going to say yes. I'm going to say, is this time good? Yes. And then I think, oh, okay, we're good to go. Because I was born in 1975. And that's how we do things. And, and, and I don't evolve like everybody else does.
1: It's funny, though, because you actually are so advanced when it comes to technology. But this problem has happened in the past where Mark will verbally set up an appointment with somebody and that's the end of it. So of course the person thinks I didn't get an invite. I don't know what you're talking about. So thank you guys yeah. for being patient with Mark and his old school ways when it comes to scheduling appointments. Where's my pen and paper? Where's my pen and paper?
2: <laughs> uh, it's no problem. I uh, I was explaining to my son yesterday, exactly on this point that you used to have to make appointments over the phone that's plugged into a Oh, really. month on time, you know, there's no way to text or call someone midway.
1: It's so true. Well, hey everyone, it's Amanda, and yeah, we've got two guests on our phone today. We have Ronan and Mike, and they are from Field Trip Health, which we're going to learn about today. Field Trip Health offers psychedelic therapies for, I guess, people with PTSD, anxiety, depression. I will let them speak on this a little bit more.
0: You um, know how we we came we came about all of this. We were watching a whole Mark bunch. Mark of-
1: was born in 1975 and <laughs> listens to talk radio. <laughs>
0: no 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 that's a, that's part of it that's that's how we found these two fine gentlemen but we were watching some stuff on 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 what is that what's that what's that streaming thing that we watch all time? Netflix Netflix yes wow. Netflix I know holy jeez <laughs> cuz I was talking about 1975 and that's what happened we were watching some stuff on Netflix and there's two two different shows that we were watching one was Gwyneth Paltrow's uh, whatever show that she's got there with right, her, yeah. whatever her platform is goop or whatever the thing is and i think one of their episodes might have been the first episode where she took her whole staff and they were doing like guided mushroom trips. Yes. And then I was like that's freaking cool. We have a continuing education company called Connet Institute and there are people that came through our doors and they all came through at the same time actually. One dude came in for a cupping course and he was talking about doing ayahuasca in Central America and South America and how he does this crap all the time. He's constantly flying down and all this stuff and he, he, he loves it, whatever he gets out of it. And then I had someone else come in for an exam prep and and she does she does guided mushroom trips but not with anyone that is qualified like you guys and she said that it helped her like quit smoking and she's she's lost her online shopping addiction and all that stuff. And I was like, okay. Is, and that, then a I,
1: re- is that a real thing? Online shopping addiction? I maybe. I don't I know. I might have it. You,
0: really? <laughs> <laughs> is it Just cruising cruising Amazon. Is that what you do? I cruise be. Facebook, you cruise Amazon. Yeah, it might be a it's thing. It's unreal. And then I heard you guys on on uh, talk radio because I sit in my car and I listen to a lot of talk radio.
1: Yeah, well, so the two gentlemen that I was about to introduce, but Mark got super excited Excited because he's Sorry. been he's been dying to talk to you guys ever since we set up the first one that failed. Uh, we've got Mike on the line who's a medical doctor and he's um sort of the medical leading Canada for Field Trip Health and then Ronan who is one of the founders. So we've got uh, two people here that have a wealth of knowledge between them about psychedelic therapy and what it is. And um yeah, I'm excited to learn because as I said to them off, mic, I know nothing about this. I'm I not even a little bit of an expert. I know zero things other than what our students may have told us. And as Mark said, they didn't go through uh, doctors. They just kind of, I guess, did these things on their own. Glad it helped them. But I'd like to hear a little more from the experts on you know, what conditions you guys treat, how this company came to be, and um, you know, what psychedelic therapy is and how it can help. So before we start, why don't I... Th- Throw it over to you guys. Um, you can rock paper scissors. Who goes first? Uh, brief introduction about yourself, sort of. Mike would have to turn on his camera for that. Yeah. <laughs> brief introduction. He's probably working from home and in pajamas. Let's be honest. Um, who there you are? Go. How long you've been doing what you're doing? And uh, what got you into this type of work?
2: Sure, because because Mike's still muted. I'll I'll hop in first. This is Ronan speaking. Uh I'm a, a recovering lawyer, uh is kind of how I got my way into this. Um you know, in some ways truthfully, in some ways not so truthfully. But uh yeah, so uh, myself and, and the co-founders, in fact Mike as well, uh, but in, in a different path. We were very active in the Canadian medical cannabis industry. Um we got into cannabis as entrepreneurs, not necessarily cannabis advocates. You know, I had tried cannabis a few times, a handful of times. Some of my business partners had never tried it, uh, but we saw a really cool opportunity to do something you know, exciting in emerging space. And um, we started a company called Canadian Cannabis Clinics and Cannabis r Canadian Cannabis Clinics grew to become one of the largest networks of cannabis specialized medical clinics in Canada we helped 150,000 Canadians access the legal medical cannabis system, went in totally agnostic as to the therapeutic potential of cannabis. Um, but we, we really changed a lot of people's lives. You know, we, we saw the patients and, and they were genuinely sick people and it profoundly improved the quality of their lives almost uniformly. It was, it was really touching, really moving, uh, really special to be part of something. And then it was a great success, both from, uh, Impact perspective as well as a business perspective, because we sold that to Aurora Cannabis back in 2016 and helped that company grow into uh, one of the largest global producers of cannabis. So, a really fun ride, but one that really opened our eyes to the potential of this modality that seems so shady, you know, and, and so stigmatized and, and so questionable in our minds when we got into it but after we saw that uh, and we left aurora and we were looking for something new and exciting to get involved with we learned about what was happening with psychedelics and and uh, just given the kind of superficial similarities between cannabis and psychedelics it seemed like a natural thing for us to jump into having Really built a lot of credibility for the cannabis industry, and and seeing potential to do the same in the psychedelics industry. So we started digging into the research and the science. And um, you know, if you think cannabis is a potent therapeutic tool, uh, psychedelics are, are kind of the next level up. You know, the the potential impact that a well-considered, well-functioning psychedelic therapy industry is going to have on this world is is genuinely mind-blowing. From the people who suffer from depression and anxiety and PTSD and and eating disorders to people who don't necessarily have any clinical diagnoses. I mean, all of us have some sort of trauma. All of us carry some sort of baggage. And and psychedelics are really a tool that can open our mind, just like conventional therapy. It's it's, it's just like hyperspeed conventional therapy in, in some respects. And so to the extent that you can ben- benefit from conventional therapy, and I think literally every single person on the planet can benefit from conventional talk therapy. You know, this is really just significantly more potent, more effective, more eye-opening, uh, more integrating kind of work. And and so, as we learned about that, we're like, we got to do something here. This is this is like our opportunity to do something like Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson level impact. Uh, and so, out of those efforts, field trip field trip was born uh so that's how i kind of got into this space I- and got in kind of you know very limited experience with psychedelics uh but uh since then i have uh, expanded my repertoire and, and, and personal understanding, that's for sure.
1: So cool. I have so many things to say, but I'm going to let Mike introduce himself first. So Mike, thanks for joining us. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit of your background? And I guess Ronan gave a little, a little bit about how you got involved, but you're also a medical doctor, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if Ronan's a recovering lawyer, I think I'm a recovering doctor. <laughs> um, the only problem is, is I wasn't an independent practice before I realized that I wanted to go down a different path path. And um, about six years ago, uh, I was graduating at U of T in my family medicine specialty. um, And I just felt, you know, the opioid crisis was really peaking. Um, So many of my patients were on, you know, eight to 10 pharmaceuticals. and, And like, I was struggling to help them because they just kept coming in every week. And I would just keep adjusting their medications. And it felt like this path that like, I wasn't getting fulfillment out of the patient wasn't getting better. And I thought, there's got to be an alternative here than this path for so many of my patients, and and mind you, I was in the hospital setting working with very complex patients with a mix of physical as well as mental health disorders. Um, so I actually ended up uh, doing an elective, my very last elective six years ago. I went to a cannabis clinic. It was you know uh, the cannabinoid medical clinic. It was um, I think one of the first ones in, in Canada, and I went there with. Uh, certain expectations because, you know, medical training taught you that cannabis was bad and that it was only harmful and that there was no therapeutic value. There was no training whatsoever in my medical education. You know, the the number of people I had to even convince to let me do this elective um, was overwhelming. Um, But nonetheless, um, you know, after a couple of days of working in this clinic and watching children go from, uh, you know, a thousand seizures in a couple of months to like two or three, Um, go from, you know, knocking on death's door to living a life and hitting their milestones as a kid and and hearing these stories from parents, um, I was completely blown away. And I I started questioning so much that I learned in the medical education system and the $200,000 I had just spent to get this medical degree. And uh, I decided then and there that, you know, these patients need a doctor who's well-educated, who understands the pros and cons of cannabis and who can help them access it. And so I decided, um, you know, given that demand and the lack of doctors that were trained and educated, that I would dedicate part of my career to doing that. And so over the last six years, I've been working with medical cannabis and I've treated over seven to 8,000 patients. I, I do a lot of pediatric work with uh, epilepsy, autism, and, and pediatric cancers. Um, and it's nice to know that um, there's this alternative safe option with medical cannabis. Um, but along that journey, maybe about two years ago, um, you know, some of my patients, while medical cannabis helps, I noticed... Um, that they were dealing with deeper issues and that we weren't really getting to the root cause of it. And it it wasn't until a couple of patients had told me about microdosing psilocybin and going to Peru to do an ayahuasca retreat. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, this is a whole nother field that doctors are completely uneducated about. And then I learned um, doing my own research that, wow, there's a lot of therapeutic potential here. And I wanted to take my learning and my experience to the next level to really continue to help those patients who are really treatment resistant because that's the population I've been seeing in the cannabis clinic. It's these patients who've been through six to seven, eight pharmaceuticals, six to seven specialists. And then they come to me and they say, look, doc, you're my last hope you need to help. And I still wanted another tool, another uh, option to help these patients dealing with complex mental and physical issues. And so uh, through my learning, through my training, um, I, I was, became very interested in psychedelics, um, having known Ronan and others in the cannabis space. Um, you know, I reached out and, and went to go visit the clinic and said, look, I'm extremely passionate about this. I want to be a part of this future. Um, and, and yeah, fast forward now, I've been with field trip for a year as the medical director in Canada, um, helped them launch the uh, ketamine treatment program that we use in Toronto. And we now use in a number of clinics in North America as well in the States, and uh, actually just yesterday we announced that we're, um, you know, in the process of starting a, a research study with MDMA uh, with MAPS on anorexia. So, um, you know, this is a revolution that we're going through when it comes to medication and a completely innovative approach to really, really helping people actually heal, not just masking or treating those symptoms that are on the surface, but we're really trying to get to the root cause of individuals' problems and no two paths are the same. And these drugs and therapies are really what's going to help so many people cure their illness.
1: I'm already mind blown and that was just the introduction. So this is going to be fun. Um, I will say like, when Ronan described the psychedelic therapy that you guys do as sort of like um I think he said fast track psychotherapy, that's sort of in my head what I had envisioned, um, is that it's somewhat like talk therapy, but just sped up because you're actually able to get into a person's mind or brain more clearly using the psychedelics along with the therapy. So I guess I knew more than I thought I did. That was sort of like my envision of just like, (laughs) "Let's, let's get to this quicker instead of spending, you know, three months once a week talking about things. Let's really figure out what's going on there.
0: What's the history of the use of psychedelics in this field?
2: I mean... It depends on how far back you want to go. Like psychedelics uh, have been used in sacramental and religious uses uh, for thousands of years in, in different cultures. In terms of the West and a uh, medical therapeutic context, it really kind of started in the, you know, I think MDMA and LSD were synthesized in sometime around the 1930s or 1940s. And, and research and interest around psychedelics really started to amplify in the 50s after. Uh, I forget the gentleman's name, but a gentleman traveled to Mexico and, and was introduced to psilocybin mushrooms and brought that back. And I think there's a Time Time or, or Life article uh, about his experience about the magic mushrooms. Um, and that kind of kickstarted real interest in, in the West. Uh, and, and there was an incredible amount of research around LSD and, and psilocybin in the 50s and 60s out of Harvard University. Um, and then, you know, it kind of slipped out of the lab and the academic settings and, and hit the, the sort of counterculture movement. Uh and that's kind of what created the political backlash. But the use of psychedelics, you know, it's it's very robust, it's worldwide, uh almost all Uh, cultures uh, historically have looked at psychoactive um, ingredients whether it's specifically psychedelic or not Uh, you know they're they're pretty robust in fact there's a a great book that i just finished reading called the immortality key uh, which uh, provides evidence that psychedelics were used in ancient greece and may have been one of the the instigators and inspirations for the creation of democracies and academic institutions and all sorts of things as well as uh you know the Christian sacrament and the Eucharist so If you're willing to look hard enough, uh, even though the evidence isn't quite uh, as persuasive as some may like, you can find evidence of the use of psychedelics across many cultures throughout history.
0: You know what? I'm going to blame the hippies for this. I'm going to blame the hippies for, you know, seriously, I'm going to blame the hippies for the slowdown in the research and everything else, because the the use of LSD now being looked at by the government as, oh, this is not something that we can have. We can't have this. Are we blaming
1: the hippies or are we blaming the government? Item nine. Because I'm blaming the government. <laughs> illegal
0: Illegal And therefore you see things like All of the research Come down to a, a screeching halt Essentially And you know I, I, I blame the
1: hippies No I'm blaming the government Sorry Before
2: you blame the hippies uh, You know that culture Counterculture movement Was one of the biggest instigators For the environmental movement And human rights And all sorts exactly. of stuff So uh, I would blame the government
1: too The hippies had it Nixon right so <laughs> the And the government it's, just had to prove That they were the big boys In uh, the suits gotcha That's it. Suits
0: versus dungarees Is what's happening now.
1: Okay. okay. <laughs> the other thing, um, when Mike was talking about um, working with children and epilepsy, I can't really talk about this because I'll just start crying, and it's not—it's not even uh, afternoon yet. But I did know a parent who dealt with a child who had some sort of seizure disorder that wasn't, I guess, very common. It was a little more rare. This kid was essentially seizing most of the day and I know he was put into a number of like medically induced comas and all of these different types of treatments um she did her own research and she tried to talk to a number of doctors to see if cannabis might be um A treatment that could be used for him. I think none of the doctors were really on board. Now, this was a long time ago. So I I think it was, you know, the stigma still exists, but it was probably even worse at that point. And nobody was really, really willing to hear her out about the cannabis treatments. She ended up, I don't know how, but getting her hands on like CBD oils and things on her own and starting to use it. And she was seeing positive results, but she was doing this against her doctor's advice. And I guess she spoke to the doctors. And at some point, maybe about a month before her son passed away they finally started realizing that the cannabis was doing something for him it was just unfortunately way too late yeah
3: it's quite sad right and and i've been in the medical cannabis industry for 6 years and so uh, you know 6 years ago i remember presenting to a, a room of doctors to try to educate them on medical cannabis and You know, there's people, uh, you know, in the crowd who want to stand up and hijack my presentation and, you know, call me out for the things I was doing and, you know, say things like I was murdering people for giving them cannabis. And, This the lack of education and and that strong confirmation bias because they grew up at a time where, you know, they were taught and trained through their medical education that cannabis is all bad and there's no positives. It's just really, really sad for such an educated population to see that they can't move the needle on their confirmation biases or even not to recognize that they have such a bias. And uh, I really struggled with that for a number of years. And I'm just grateful that, you know, you know, being in front of crowds and, and, you know, being a keynote speaker at large events and traveling the world to educate really over the last six years, I've seen such a pendulum shift. It's a lot of hard work. Um, it, it, you know, it's not just me, it's patients and, and children and, and advocates in the space, um, but it's really education and opportunities like this to really just get out there in front of people. Share what the literature actually shows, and then just pause and reflect on the fact that maybe what you think isn't true and maybe what you know governments have told us could be wrong or falsified or isn't the full picture. And it's really sad when you know, a patient gets caught up in that system. Um, and so you know, probably my strongest um, you know trait I think is really a patient advocate and and working in these fields gives me that opportunity to fulfill that uh, meaningful goal for me.
1: It just seems like, medical doctors as a group of people should have that attitude, you know, as a patient advocate, but we've all come to learn in our entire lives that you have to advocate for yourselves and your families because sometimes the medical system, unfortunately, doesn't want to hear these things, you know, especially when it comes to things like cannabis or psychedelics, because the stigma is still there and very real, even though there's literature to support what you guys are doing. Um, With what you're doing now with Field Trip Health, do you still get a lot of pushback in the medical community? Are there people trying to shut you down? Are there people who think that you guys are out of your freaking minds? Kind of
3: strange. Um, I felt a lot more resistance with cannabis than I do with ketamine. And I just wonder if the fact that ketamine is a synthetic drug and has, you know, 20 to 30 years of research, well, even more, like actually we're talking 70 years we've been using ketamine, right? They've used it in in the war, right? It was called the buddy drug. And, um, you know, if the soldier next to you went down, everybody had a vial of ketamine on them. You just gave an injection to the guy next to you. You didn't need any medical training or anything. It's such a safe drug, um, that you could just give it to somebody. It wouldn't suppress their ability to drive, but give them that anti-pain and dissociative effect. So we have seventy years of using ketamine. Children, you know, in emergency rooms every single day get ketamine if they fracture like a bone or something and they need to reset it. Um, it's one of the safest anesthetics we have, and and we've known for twenty years that it has antidepressant properties. So I think the fact that we have that historical, um, you know, history around ketamine makes ketamine more of an acceptable drug. Uh, when it comes to the other novel psychedelics, we'll call them novel, but like Ronan mentioned, we've been using them for thousands of years. Psilocybin, MDMA, um, you know, so many other um, psychedelic drugs that have recreational potential. I don't know what the opinion really is. I think most of them are still in that research phase, and they haven't really left um, the research phase into you know treating wide populations yet in clinics like ours. What is going to come in the next, let's say, two to five years? Um, So it'll be interesting to see how the medical culture accepts that. But I think because the evidence is being held to this phase three, phase four trials, And the literature is going to support it. FDA is going to approve it. Health Canada is going to be approving these therapies. I think there's not going to be a lot of hesitance uh, that you see with cannabis because cannabis really went through a different route. It didn't go through the traditional pharmaceutical route. And I think that makes a lot of physicians nervous who are really trained to just, you know has to go through these authorities and, 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 and committees. And you need that stamp of approval to feel comfortable as a doctor to prescribe it. Cannabis went through an alternative route where patients advocated through the court system that it was a medicine. So the government created a completely separate system than pharmaceuticals and the evidence for cannabis, um, you know, mind you, it does work for five or six conditions with excellent evidence, but for the 20 conditions that patients use it for the evidence isn't there. Um, but what I struggle with is the fact that physicians really are, are so focused on that scientific evidence. They don't pause and realize that like, we got to look at the risks as well, because you can take a risk if the evidence isn't there. And when you look at cannabis's overall toxicity profile and psychedelics in general, the toxicity is negligible to non-existent and you know why are you prescribing a drug with so much toxicity or so much risk or so many side effects just because it's proven to be efficacious when you have an alternative that is safer and so we've lost along our journey in medicine we've lost sight of the first do no harm principle it's not first do best clinical evidence sponsored by the drug manufacturer and we've lost complete sight of it and that's what we do that's literally what we do today and that's what's so frustrating for me as a physician it's first do no harm You can always prescribe an opioid if cannabis doesn't work. You can always prescribe Lyrica if CBD doesn't help a patient with nerve pain. But those drugs do typically carry substantially higher risk. So I'm on a mission to change that and and remind physicians that it's first do no harm.
1: I think you are fully recovered, Mike. I don't think you're a recovering (laughs) physician. But um, yeah, it blows my mind that the same doctor will use the term opioid crisis with his script out prescribing opiate like I it doesn't make any bloody sense to me as you said the toxicity of something like cannabis being so low I it's I mean I'm not a doctor so who am I right I'm a massage therapist I'm not even allowed to talk about drugs with my patients so I'll just sit back and listen to you guys well, one of the things that's so
2: exciting and and listen my my experience not as a doctor but as a as an entrepreneur in the cannabis industry was similar you know when we launched we launched at a, a a conference called Primary Care Today, and and doctors would come up to our booth, look at our sign that said medical marijuana starts here. Um, you know, pa- back then it was still called marijuana as opposed to cannabis, and they would give us a wide berth. And then within a year, you know, more people would start, you know, stop and, and look at our booth and think about it for a second. But within about two years, uh, we became one of the most popular booths at the conference because doctors had seen the, not the evidence per se, but they had seen patients who started using cannabis, showed profoundly positive results, and started being more open-minded to it. So it was one of those things, they just needed to see it firsthand, as opposed to the drug manufacturer's monograph. With psychedelics though, at least my experience has been quite different, that there seems to be a lot more receptivity to it. And I think it's a, a, a function of a couple of things. First of all, as Mike noted, the evidence is is different and the pathway for for psychedelics and the renaissance that's happening right now is different. It's coming out of leading academic institutions. It's coming out of phase three, phase four trials. I think cannabis has done wonders to open people's minds to the potential of psychedelics. You know, they had these once very strongly held views about cannabis, and then all of a sudden they realized that we're wrong. And so I think we're starting from a bar that's been lowered relative to what cannabis experienced over the last few years. Um, But one of the things that's most exciting for me about psychedelics is that when you look at how psychedelics work in the brain from a functional MRI perspective... What it causes the brain to do is talk to itself better. You know, different parts of the brain starts communicating. You know, with each other. Uh, and so, one of the challenges, especially as we grow old, from a psychological perspective, is that we get locked into these mental models. And the older we become, the less we challenge them, the more rigid they become. And psychedelics, by their nature, actually blow up these mental models that we've been so adherent to. So, not only do psychedelics have the capacity to help a number of patients, I think they're actually going to Start to address if there's a way to create greater access. Some of these confirmation biases uh, that we see, you know, one of the some of the studies show that one of the effects of psychedelic therapies is that people are more open minded. You know, in, in this world in this political context, what a what a wonderful treat that would be if more people were more more open minded to alternative perspectives. And then that, that's the kind of stuff that gets really me really excited. I don't want to sound like Timothy Leary, but I do think the impact of psychedelics on our society can be quite profound uh, even outside of a medical context.
1: Yeah. You know what? I want to I want maybe for people listening, um, get some some clarity on exactly. Okay. So we had mentioned that the psychedelics you guys are using, it's ketamines. I, I'm, for anyone listening that doesn't understand what that is, can you break it down in the most lay terms possible?
3: Yeah, I can take a stab at that. So So as I mentioned earlier, ketamine is this anesthetic drug that we use, um, you know, uh, anesthetists prescribe it every day to help people go through typical surgeries um, or, you know, temporary sedation so that they can do a procedure in the emergency room, like resetting a bone or or something. Um, But yeah, 20 years ago, we discovered that if you take a lower dose, what we call sub anesthetic dose so that you're not asleep. You get a little bit of this dissociative effect. So, you kind of disconnect from your everyday, ordinary pattern of thought. And what studies have shown is is that's actually what we call neuroplasticity, which is just the brain's ability to learn. So, you enter this state, a transient, temporary state, where for 30, 40, maybe 60 minutes, your brain is in a state where it can learn new patterns of thinking. And you can imagine OCD, anxiety, they have very, very rigid patterns of thinking. And they struggle to learn, even with therapy. It takes, you know, thousands of dollars and you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, of sessions to change the way they think, because we become stubborn in the way we think. And so, what ketamine does is it hyper accelerates this learning, and it quiets your normal defense mechanisms. And allows you, and in our model with therapy, to really accelerate rapidly, learn new habits. And then what happens is, is you feel lighter, you feel more calm, you feel a sense of well-being. You realize that your old patterns of thinking maybe aren't in your best interest.
2: I, I would just add one thing that a lot of people report is that when on ketamine uh, or other psychedelics, they're often able to revisit past experiences uh from a more objective perspective so something that was overwhelmingly emotional or traumatizing uh that would um just be you know impossible to talk to in a conventional therapy context becomes something that's more accessible for people to start dealing with so not only do you get this neuroplasticity happening uh in the brain on a on a on a functional biological basis but on an emotional basis people are able to start processing uh, memories and traumas that have been locked away and completely inaccessible because their uh, ego defense mechanism have just locked them away and said do not go there. Uh, and people can start to go there on psychedelics and, and ketamine as well.
1: Right. So, like like Mike was saying, they can actually dissociate from that and be able to objectively go to these experiences and figure them out. Versus you know our normal pattern. I say our because I think this is probably majority of people when you know traumatic experiences happen, your brain is trying to bury it. Bury it, bury it. Like it's it's not something that you want in the forefront of your mind because that's terrifying. So, what does a typical let's say somebody were to contact you? and they wanted to set up an appointment. What's a What's a typical appointment look like there? What do you guys do? Is there some sort of... Um, yeah, what's the process? Yeah, is there, is there a process that, you know, are people sort of vetted in a certain way? Do you have patients that you turn away? Are there, you know, ideal patients that are receptive to this therapy? I know you said everybody could benefit, but in terms of what you guys do, who are your patients?
3: Yeah, I'll walk you through that process. So, Um, Most of the clinical evidence to date is predominantly what we call treatment-resistant depression, which is defined as you know, depression um, that has failed a minimum of two pharmaceuticals. It's, you know, an arbitrary thing that we've created in the medical literature. Um, And that's where the most amount of research uh, where ketamine takes place is is in that very resistant population. But, you know, I think common sense would tell you that if it works for the most severe depression, it obviously works for, you know, everybody's major depressive disorder. So um, in addition to that, there's emerging evidence in anxiety disorders, OCD and, and trauma as well. And so we have really two streams in our clinic one is a depressive stream. So people with depression, and then we have another stream, which is patients with trauma. It's a post-traumatic stress disorder typically. And the process is typically patients will get a referral from either their psychiatrist or their family doctor. They'll see our in-house psychiatrist and our in-house psychiatrist will make sure that they qualify for the ketamine from a medical perspective, that they have the right diagnoses. And um, also that it's safe for them, that there's no contraindications. Mind you, You know, it's pretty much, you know, 95 to 99 out of hundred people who qualify for the ketamine, it's safe for them. Like it's very rare that anybody would have a contraindication to not using it. It's, it's a very, very narrow list. Um, and then after that, they go through um, a whole journey and a whole process. And um, we really bring in our psychotherapy and our medical team at that point. And um, the protocol for ketamine is uh, two ketamine sessions per week for three weeks. And during those ketamine sessions, you get a dose plus one hour um, of psychotherapy. Uh, Mind you, most of that psychotherapy is just um, in a sitter role where we're just observing and holding space. And if the patient feels like they want to talk, we talk. But mostly it's an internal experience where uh, we put eye shades on you. We put specially curated music, um, what you call psychedelic music if you want. And the two are very synergistic. And then after every two ketamine sessions, and of course, we're always adjusting the dose to try to maximize the therapeutic potential. Um, after every two ketamine sessions, we add in what's called an integration session, which is no ketamine. But we look back at those past two ketamine uh, experiences and therapy sessions. And we ask, you know, what did you learn from that? Or or what came out for you? Because no two patients are the same. And what we're doing at that integration session is taking the opportunity of that neuroplasticity window and what experiences were um, felt during those two sessions and trying to integrate it in your everyday life. So what can you do differently about your everyday life that's going to live you allow you to live a more meaningful life? And so we do this pattern of ketamine-ketamine integration three times, and then patients will graduate from our program. Um, and that's kind of uh, the overall model, the process, how it works, um, and it's a lot of hard work. Patients have to recognize that um, there's some misconceptions that people are just going to come in, they're going to you know get a psychedelic experience every single time, and it's going to be very easy work. It's like, well, that's not quite quite how it works. Like you're going to do a lot of internal processing. You have got to build a lot of space in your schedule. You have to be committed to the process. And if you're not, then you know we're going to pause and just wait until it's the right time in your life to make substantial change because we want you to have that long term clinical
1: outcome. When people uh, get the ketamine. Dose when it wears off, um, like, do they remember everything that just happened? Is there any type of like, like, memory issues after, or like, do they realize what just happened? How how do they feel afterwards?
3: Yeah, so uh, our strategy is really to start with low doses of ketamine and then slowly um, increase the dose depending on the individual, and it's a bit idiosyncratic. There's no one dose fits all. Like it's, it's very, a lot of art and medicine here. And so we have to listen to patients on how they respond to certain doses and slowly increase the dose, but we don't want to increase the dose so much that you get an anesthetic effect where your memory is erased because then it's not as valuable as an experience. Right. And that's what we have to, you know, educate patients on because sometimes they're saying, Oh, keep pushing it, keep pushing it. And, you know, they they start to put too much faith into the drug and not the whole process, which is drug plus therapy. Right. And um, so, so the key is, is to use those sub anesthetic doses where, Um, you're kind of in a dream state for that hour. And there's, you know, varying levels of how deep the dream is. But when you come out of it, um, you know, you're going to remember 60 to 80% of it, depending on the dose. Um, And then when you sit with the therapist, we can kind of You know, instill this
1: So we had discussed on a a different episode That uh, we did an episode about float therapy Because myself and one of my friends Went to a float tank just to try it out And when I was describing the experience to Mark um, He said, that sounds terrifying to me He's basically afraid of anything that will alter his mind So, you know, when these students were talking to us About the psychedelics that they had experienced I'm like, you're fucking
0: crazy (laughs) (laughs)
1: this terrifies him. He said his view on this is there's parts of my brain that I don't think I'm supposed to open up. Talk to Mark, guys.
2: (laughs) I'll I'll let Mike speak to that because he's better suited. I've done floats um, and it can be a very psychedelic like experience, right? Like it's it's no different than just really intense meditation, right? Where enforced meditation because you're blocking out everything else so uh, if you're opposed to meditation maybe i get you're opposed to float tanks but beyond that i think floats are you know cool experiences just make sure to wear proper earplugs because i didn't and my ears hurt for days afterwards
3: yeah i think the question is is what is the resistance like what are you worried that's going to come out like there's obviously fear there and the question is is like why that like going through like you know meditative and psychedelic states and, and you don't need a psychedelic drug to achieve A psychedelic uh, enhanced state, right? Uh, If you want a mystical experience, you can get that through spiritual practices. You can get that through running. You can get that through exercise. You can get it through deep breathing, holotropic breath work. There's so many things that you can do to have an enlightened state. But that enlightenment path is really one of getting to know yourself better. And so um, the question is, is, you know, maybe it's just not the right time, maybe in that individual's life but at some point you might want to just kind of get in touch with you know your inner child and and that that other version of you that's lighter, you know smiles more, is more open, more empathetic, more connected to uh, individuals around you as well as you know um, the world and the universe and that's what um you know mystical experiences really provide is an opportunity to really feel hyper-connected to everything around you.
1: What are you afraid
0: of? You have demons? I think I'm, uh, yeah, I think I'm scared. (laughs) I'm going to be hyper-aware of like all of the negative shit. Do you know what I mean? Like, you've described some really positive things, but there's always the potential for the complete opposite, I I assume.
2: The the general consensus right now, uh, from a sort of therapeutic and medical and scientific perspective, is that there's nothing, there's no such thing as a bad trip per se. I mean, growing up, I was born in 79, so I'm sure we had very similar high school experiences where you get all these terrible stories about LSD making you go crazy, frying that egg that is your brain, and all that kind of stuff. And you know, a lot of that, it's its not entirely untrue, but it's certainly exaggerated. And the current belief is that there's no such thing as a bad trip per se. There's only easy trips and hard trips. An easy trip is exactly what you'd imagine. A hard trip is kind of exactly what you would imagine. But a hard trip very often can be amongst the most therapeutic when done in a context where there's Proper support around you. You can have the biggest fears after a hard trip. Without this proper support, if you have a hard trip and you know you just let it manifest and and live in your subconscious and and create more fears, then it can become a bad trip and, and kind of create its own instance of trauma. But it doesn't have to go that way. So even if it is a terrifying experience, there is a lot of growth and potential positive outcomes from it as long as you're doing it with the right support that that's the current belief at least
1: i think he's worried about coming out of something like this being permanently changed like his brain is permanently altered and not in a positive way i think i watch too many movies yeah
3: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't think you you get permanently altered i just think you have more freedom of thought so you get um you know, what we call neuroflexibility. So you have way more opportunity to consider uh, any situation you find yourself from many more perspectives. And that's what psychedelics do is, you know, you can, as Ronan mentioned, revisit past experiences, but kind of from a third person perspective and say, wow, like I first initially programmed my brain that this was such a negative experience, but, you know, so I made a hundred assumptions and maybe from this third person perspective, like 90% of those assumptions were wrong. And I've been living my whole life you know, fearful of this. But maybe this third person's perspective is so important for you to kind of pause and say, well, maybe I don't need to be so emotional about that event in my life. Maybe I can reconsider the fact that um, I can reprogram my brain in a different perspective. And, And you don't get that emotional response anymore. And that allows you to really live life with, you know, less chains and less barriers.
1: In the short time that you guys have been doing this, do you have any, like, Standout success stories, you know, people that have made like major breakthroughs for lack of a better term. And, you know, anything that you can share that, you know, has shown really clinical evidence that this is something that could be really beneficial for certain types of people.
2: I'll let Mike speak to that because he has first hand experience, but I'm also happy to share uh some of the the impacts that like my work with psychedelic therapies have had on my life, which aren't necessarily yes. You know, seemingly so profound, uh, but are meaningfully improving the quality of my life. But I'll let Mike talk to some of the more profound experiences first. Yeah, I can, you know, one of our patients really comes
3: to mind. um, You know, she was a a late 40s um, female patient who, you know, had a history of uh, sexual traumas and and men in her life who, um, you know, abused her. And she found herself in this constant cycle of being attracted to. Um, you know, men who are abusive, and she grew up never loving herself. And at the end of her six sessions, um, you know, she told our therapist and then started to cry. And she's like, "I can actually look in the mirror now and see that I am beautiful." And just something like that, uh, you know, makes you know everything that we're doing um, so worth it. Um, and that's just one story. We have other stories of. Um, you know, veterans who, um, you know, again, lived complicated lives and, um, you know, grew up with so much fear for like their, their children. And, um, you know, they had these profound psychedelic experiences, um, you know, in, in this warrior type of theme and, um, you know, they, they envisioned armor kind of, um, you know, falling off of their chest and, and, and at the same time as they had this visual experience of armor falling off their chest, they felt that they were just so much lighter and had so much more bandwidth to deal with the wide range of emotions that they went through, through, you know, their traumas, their experiences and really come out, you know, not so anxious or paranoid for their children and their lives. So there's just so many stories and, and no two stories are really the same. And, and, you know, the key message here is that this is a journey and, uh, where everybody is on their journey is very different. right? We have people who are you know at very high stages of enlightenment and and you know are um you know meditating you know many hours a day. And then we have people who are just starting out who just need a gentle nudge to you know just start to care for themselves and start to do the day-to-day tasks that allow them to you know live a healthy life. And so that journey is something we have to respect. No two people um are are on the same path or the same journey and, and that's what psychedelic therapy, you know, respects.
1: Oh, you're preaching to the choir. I'm a I'm a hippie RMT, so I love it. Uh, yeah Ronan, I want to hear about your personal experience.
2: I should have gone first because it's hard to follow that up, but um <laughs> you know, it's one of the conversations that uh, I've been having with the people I work with is that like it's it, it doesn't have to be as profound as like being able to look yourself in the mirror or like feeling like this warrior context is falling off you. I'll give you an example of a, a breakthrough I had recently, which was. I react very negatively to the word don't. When people say don't do something, uh, it makes me want to do it. It makes me angry. You know, in in, in most contexts, if it's with a person I don't know super well, it just makes me want to kind of do what they say don't do. You know and Mark, but in, in the context of like my marriage, <laughs> no, I have no idea what that's like, <laughs> uh, but in the context of like my marriage, like anytime my wife says "Don't, like I get angry, like it really hits a nerve, and I had you know I just kind of accepted it, and then recently, I became aware um through some of my work with psychedelics of like a memory when I was like three or four years old, and I was eating a banana at my grandfather's house, and my grandfather snapped at me and said, "Don't eat that," and i stopped and like I started crying of course I was three or four years old and of course part of it was his reaction but part of it was like I thought I was doing something good right I was like three or four year old I'm eating fruit I'm not eating cookie I'm not eating uh candy I'm eating fruit, and he snapped at me and told me I shouldn't be eating fruit And like, it scarred me. It sounds innocuous, but like from that moment, I've hated the word don't. And anytime I hear it, I react negatively. And it's only because like in the last couple of weeks that I've become aware of just how profoundly that's affected my life. And I don't know how to work through it necessarily, but even the awareness of like, that was the moment. And I told my wife, you know, that, um, you know, one time she kind of said, don't do something. And like, I shut down and I finally had the courage to say like, hey, when you say this, I shut down and here's why. Not saying I know how to fix it. I'm not saying I know what to do about it. At least you know that if you see me go into this state, that's why. And it's like, it's helped our relationship a ton because now she can understand what I'm going through and she doesn't have to necessarily make Changes to her behavior, but you can now be compassionate and understanding, and like that little tweak has profoundly improved our marriage. You know, over the course of a month or two, there's just like a lot more closeness. Uh, so it's not as profound as as being able to see myself in the mirror or anything along those lines, but God, my my life is a lot better as a result of it.
1: I will say that's profound. Uh, you guys may or may not know, but Mark and I are actually married, so we are married. We run two businesses together. We host this podcast together. I'm essentially with this man. Twenty-four hours a day sounds <laughs>
0: glorious to me. <laughs> yeah,
1: right. <laughs> and um,
0: lucky fucking you.
1: <laughs> something we prioritize is making sure we understand how to communicate with each other because the smallest little thing, like you just said, all you know, she would have no idea that just saying "don't" could set you off like that just being aware of something so small can avoid so many misunderstandings in a day and just help you guys live a little bit more peacefully. And that's something like we make sure that we do is understanding how to communicate with each other because otherwise we will rip each other's faces off. We never, ever, ever have a break <laughs> from each other ever. Oh, I'm getting the filthiest look right
3: now. <laughs> well, you know, what's really interesting is that, um, uh, you know, very innovative doctors and psychiatrists working with ketamine and who do couples counseling are are now trying to combine the two and use low doses of ketamine with couples counseling. And um, you know, their experience has been nothing but profound, but to get people to shift so much in their relationship and to just be so much more empathetic with their partner. Um, so that's a whole nother field that I think is is really going to be profoundly changes is, is is couples counseling and therapy in general with with low doses of psychedelics.
1: I love the work you guys are doing. Um, I, it's definitely going to inspire me to look more into the research. As Mark said, we watched I can't I wish I could remember maybe it was one of those like explained episodes, but we watched something recently on yeah, yeah, LSD and research and both of us were just like. You know, it it really does suck a little bit that there's just so much, <laughs> what am I in grade five? It really sucks that there's just <laughs> such a stigma with certain things like, you know, Um, psychedelics or cannabis that could have such profound impacts on certain patients. And I'm hoping that um, that stigma continues to fade and that people do open their minds up a little bit that there are alternatives to just constantly readjusting patients' medication. Like it's it's gotten to a point where there's a lot of people that don't even see value in going to see their doctor because all it's going to be is, oh, okay, it's stress or here, take this pill or take an anti-inflammatory. There's no, no looking into what the root of problems are most of the time. So I love that you guys are doing that. Um, I'm sure Mark I has feel some like questions you have. I
0: almost there. feel like you have to have a generation of medical professionals just die off for that to happen. Oh, now we're killing people. <laughs> Jesus, I'm serious. I, I I feel like that. I feel like you just need to have like a, a, a changing of the guard and and you know
3: yeah yeah we're going through it right. Fifty percent of uh, psychiatry residents. Um, are in favor of a uh, drug-assisted therapy model for mental illness. And and the other 50% today are still in favor of the, um, you know, pharmaceutical model. And so we're at 50-50 already in in today's generation and, and, you know, give it two or three more years when MDMA is approved and psilocybin is approved, that's going to jump to 70, 80%. And and these are the future uh, doctors of, of our communities. And so I'm extremely optimistic that um, the Future of Healing is one where you'll go to a center like Field Trip, um, you'll have a, a mental illness, or, or maybe it's just for personal growth, hopefully, at one point in time, um, and you'll pick from a menu um, with your therapist or your doctor the right drug and the right protocol of therapy, and you'll either grow personally or you'll alleviate the depression or you'll revisit the trauma from a third perspective. And, you know, maybe it's every six months or every year that you go through this process, but it's going to just continually allow you to reset.
1: Well, if you're optimistic, Mike, I'm optimistic.
0: Who is not? an ideal candidate for this type of therapy
3: so right now um if we're looking at ketamine and psychedelics because um dissociation is uh the principal um mechanism by which many of them work and and a lot of us have a a negative context when we think of dissociation and it might not be the best way to think of it because people have a traumatic experience and then they dissociate from life right and that's a protective mechanism and then you give them a drug that dissociates it sounds confusing but uh, so people who have a certain disorders like schizophrenia or psychosis, they live in this typically constant associated state. Um, and so you know shaking the snow globe further when they're already in that state um, is, is not wise in, in from, from what we can see to date. So So if you have a history of psychosis or schizophrenia, you know, psychedelics right now aren't recommended for you. Um, some people with certain certain physical illnesses. So, if you have like a very bad heart, or you know, your liver is is you know, end stage liver or kidney disease, you just can't metabolize these drugs as well. Right. You can't, you know, clear them in your system. Um, and, and, you know, you can't stimulate your heart, uh, you know, MDMA can really get the heart beating quite fastly. And then some psychedelics also, depending on what drugs you're on, like, uh, right now, ketamine, the be- beauty of ketamine is it's so safe for so many people and you don't have to stop any pharmaceuticals. Um, but some of the psychedelics like psilocybin, um, which, which really modulates serotonin, you have to get off your antidepressant first. So that could take months or, or, you know, weeks at least to get off that antidepressant before you take something like psilocybin. Um, so there's some barriers there as well. But, mm-hmm. but by and large, um, you know, there's at least, I'd probably say 90 95% of the population who would would not have any issue taking a, a psychedelic drug.
1: Have you guys ever seen or heard of any negative reactions or so far so good?
3: Well, I think we alluded to this earlier, right, about um, the context of the situation. So in the literature and in the psychedelic community, we look at psychedelic experiences and, and three key um, parameters have to be controlled. Drug Okay. So you need like a clean drug supply and most psychedelic experiences today do not come from clean drug supply. So you think you're taking MDMA, but you're taking speed and it's laced with who knows what. So one is you need a clean drug and a, a measured dose. You can't just take a certain amount. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's not scientific or medicinal. Two is your mindset. You don't want to take a, a psychedelic drug, um, when you're not ready to have any change in your life and you're just putting 100% faith in the drug. And it's like, no, 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 that's what pharmaceuticals do. Pharmaceuticals are passive. You take the drug and you hope it makes you better. This is active work. You take the drug, but you gotta do the work. So your mindset has to be there. And if you don't have that mindset, and we screen for this through our therapy sessions, if you're not in the right mindset, we're not going to accept you to the program because we know you're not gonna get the clinical outcome. You're putting too much faith in the drug, not the process of the journey. And then the last thing is the setting you know, you can take ketamine and go to a rave, or you can take ketamine and come to our clinic with a psychotherapist and you have completely different experiences. Okay. One of them puts you in an environment where you're out of control. Like you don't have control of that environment in that space. And there's so many other things around you that can influence your experience. So you don't necessarily want to do it in that space versus when you're in a clinic and you feel comfortable with your therapist, you're alone in a room with just one therapist. You have the music, you have the eye shades, which forces you to go internally. You're controlling that entire setting. So Drug, mindset, and setting are the three parameters that define a positive psychedelic experience. And that's why so many people perhaps have negative experiences because they aren't controlling those
1: three variables. Right. That makes sense. Um, I think it's a good time to maybe give out some information for people who are listening that Want to learn more about Field Trip Health? Um, can we get some contact info, website info, anything that our listeners can learn more about you guys and what you're doing?
2: Uh, our website is fieldtriphealth.com for anyone interested from a clinical perspective. Uh, Field Trip is publicly traded on the Canadian Securities Exchange right now. So if you're interested from an investment perspective, a better site to visit is meetfieldtrip.com. Uh, on socials. Uh we're at Field Trip Health on Twitter and Instagram and we do have a phone number, but I couldn't tell you what it is off <laughs> the top of my head. And I think uh the email is uh I think it's high at fieldtriphealth dot com. Uh but best way to get in touch with us is through the website. Perfect. And I should note that we currently have locations in uh Toronto, New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta is opening up in the next couple of weeks. And and we have a number of other clinics opening up across Canada and the US in the coming
3: months uh, as well. Yeah, I just want to add Ronan also does like an amazing podcast as well. And uh, it's called Field Tripping. And uh, someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, this is, you know, I am biased, but this is one of my favorite podcasts. He really brings on amazing people in the psychedelic space, which such uh, unique perspectives and experience and history. And so if you're really just looking to become educated or to to learn about the leaders in this space across the world, um, Field Tripping is our our podcast on, on Apple Podcasts, if you're interested.
1: Beautiful. Thanks. You Thanks, Mike. A...
2: That making me feel good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't know about the podcast, so I'm glad that he did mention that because now I'm going to be listening. Yeah, I'm going to check it out. Mark, do you have anything else you want to ask Mike or Ronan? No, I
0: think you guys uh, you guys put everything into, into place that I had.
1: Yeah, I'm really happy. I think this is uh, very eye-opening and I'm hoping that our listeners get some value out of this. And Yeah, they definitely will. Yeah, and at least knowing that there are people out there doing this kind of work, right? So um, I appreciate both of you taking the time this morning to talk to us. Uh, Thank you.
2: Thank you for having us. Thank you for your interest. Thank you for the scheduling challenges and and persevering. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, one of the most important things we're doing is trying to educate people and and change minds. You know, one of my goals and one of my responsibilities within Field Trip is to try and make this an everyday conversation. You know, you don't have to be interested or want to pursue psychedelic therapies, but we want to make sure that everybody understands the context and parameters and the science and the potential of them. Uh, and having opportunities like this really enables us to do so. So so we're grateful uh, for what you do and for having us on to talk about it. Thank
1: you.
3: Thank you very much.
0: Right on. You guys have been listening to Two Massage Therapists and a Microphone. Peace.